You may have realised by now we are looking at 1 Peter. We started a new series last week. Where's the clicker? And the series is called A Living Hope. Now, why are we doing this? Is it because uh, we as church elders just have a kind of version of pin the tail on the donkey where we've finished our series on the Lord's Prayer. We need to do something else now. Oh, yeah. 1 Peter, we haven't done that before. No. A lot of thought goes into why we choose what we do next. And I want to give you the, the reason for that by these questions which my kids often ask. Who, what, why, where and when? Who, what, why, where and when? Well, the who is the Apostle Peter. There in verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, this is Peter who's come a long way since Jesus first called him from his fishing nets and his boat, which he pulled up on the shore, and called him to follow him on a quest he knew not where. And called, called him to a, a life that would end in his death. Uh, a life full of excitement, a life full of challenge. Peter has come a long way from his immature days when he swore he would follow Jesus whatever happened and then denied him. When he jumped out of the boat and said, I'm the one that's going to walk on water and then realised and sank into the waves. When he was challenged by Jesus to come back and was forgiven. And then Jesus said, you are Peter and on this rock... I will build my church. He became the rock, the founding father, as it were, of the early church, the the foundational leader. This is Peter, the apostle, writing now to God's elect exiles scattered throughout these different places. In other words, it's a letter to ordinary Christians just like you and me. These are not scholars, although it's going to get deep. It was meant for all of us. They are ordinary people. We've read this morning, if you look at over the chapter 2, verse 18, some of them are slaves. He speaks to slaves and their problems with their bosses. Some of them have got money. Chapter 3, verse 3, he says to the women, your beauty shouldn't come from outward adornments such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewellery and fine clothes. Now, if nobody in the church had any money, there'd be no point saying that. Someone there has got enough to have a fancy hairdo and their nails done and uh, gold jewellery and he says you know your beauty shouldn't come from that some of them are married in chapter 3 he talks to wives and husbands some of them are young in chapter 5 it was good to hear my son reading these words you who are younger submit yourselves to your elders (laughs) I was saying a private amen in my heart some of them are older many of them had a pagan background they weren't from a religious or certainly a Jewish background if you look back at chapter 1 verse 18 You know it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. Now, he would not say that to Jewish people. Jewish people don't have an empty way of life handed down. They have the word of God. So he's writing to at least some non-Jews, Gentiles. In fact, over the page again, chapter 2, verse 12, he says, uh, Live such good lives among the pagans. So they're living in a place where there's a lot of pagan, non-Jewish, non-Christian lifestyle going on. And they are now following Jesus in a minority. One scholar writes this. Wherever Christians are a minority, the message of 1 Peter takes on renewed relevance. For instance, the letter became a source of hope and encouragement to students at the University of Halle in Soviet-dominated Germany after World War II. In former Yugoslavia and Muslim Indonesia, First Peter is said to be the most popular book amongst Christians. It's a letter to ordinary people 
following Jesus in a minority. So that means this letter was written for you. Who? Now where? Where do these people live? We talked a little bit about it last week, but last week we had a Thanksgiving. I didn't want to go into detail, but don't worry, you get your money's worth this week. Where are they? This is an area that in uh, the ancient world was called Asia Minor. We call it Turkey. And you can see those uh, impossible to pronounce places uh, here around the map. Oops. Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia. Now this is Turkey. You see down here you've got Cyprus. Over here we've got Syria and further down here. You'd have the country of Israel. There's Crete. And this is what we call Greece. There's Macedonia, Thrace. So Italy's over here. Long-legged Italy kicking little Sicily to the sea. As we all learned. Now this area that we're looking at, this, this huge country, modern-day Turkey, is, is vast. And it's made up of all these different provinces. He mentions five of them. On the, the, the west side... Here, closest to Greece and Italy, it was more urban, lots more cities, and more cultured. The word was Hellenized. There were more people speaking Greek who knew about Greek culture. And the further east you went, the more wild and woolly it became. The more barbarous, the more people wearing long beards and not really knowing much about the cultured world. So it's an enormous, very diverse region that this letter first went out to. And it was an area that became the cradle of Christianity. That's where. Now, why? Why was it written? Reading New Testament letters is a little bit like listening to one end of a phone call. If you've ever done that, you can hear somebody having an argument with someone and you're trying to figure out what's going on on the other end of the call. You read the letter carefully and you listen and you see what you can pick up. Now, just track along with me as we read these verses. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 6. He says, um, in all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Over the page, chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. In other words, they're in an environment where people are accusing them of doing wrong. Just skip down to verse 15. It is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. So there's groundless criticism going on. Chapter 3, verse 1. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. In other words, there are people in spiritually mixed marriages. A wife who follows Jesus, a husband who does not. He's speaking to that kind of Context, and some of you know what that's like. Chapter 3, verse 13. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats, do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience. So that those who speak maliciously against your good behaviour in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. There is suffering, there is misunderstanding, there is slander. Chapter 4, verse 4. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living and they heap abuse on you. 
There are pagan lifestyles, there's abuse. And chapter 4, verse 12, finally. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you. As though something strange were happening. They're in a particularly tight spot at the moment, as he writes. Why did he write? You've heard one end of the phone call. He's writing to people who are in the pressure cooker. They're in the furnace. Being challenged. They're being abused. People are saying things against them. aren't necessarily true. It's not necessarily fair. And he's, he's writing to them to help them to stand firm. Now, when did all this happen? We don't know exactly, but history records uh, the Romans were very into colonization. They would send loads of people out against their will and colonize a new area. And there, were colon- there was extensive colonization in these five areas, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, during the reign of the Emperor Claudius. In fact, there was a lot of trouble in Rome around about that time to, in the Jewish communities. And a lot of Jews were kicked out of Rome and sent to other parts of the empire. And that could explain why there are a lot of Christians that far north in Turkey during the Apostle Peter's lifetime. And that would mean that the phrase exiles in verse 1 is literal as well as spiritual. These are people who may well have been taken from their own country, lost their homes and sent out to the wilds where they aren't going to cause any trouble. They've been sent north and Peter knows them and he writes to them. So that's who... Where, why, when, now we're on to what. What is this piece of literature? Audience participation time. It's a letter, yes. From a real person to some real recipients. But it's more than a letter, it's a resource. It's a resource to help Christians stand fast in the true grace of God. Because in the, the, right at the end of the book, we get the reason why he wrote it. If you look at chapter 5, verse 12. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. So that's why it's written, to help us stand fast in the true grace of God together. Now there's the five minute background to the entire letter. And Peter starts by going down really deep, back to chapter one, our text for today. Just look at verse, uh, chapter 1, verses 3 to 6 with me. We'll spend our time here this morning. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, uh, my wife and I sat down to talk about this passage this week. We normally do this. We talk about what we're preaching through at church. And as we read those verses, my wife paused at the end of it and then said, you poor boy, you poor boy. That was to me. Uh, How on earth are you going to explain that? Now, I generally prepare by diving down into the text of the Bible as deep as I can and then come up for air. And then just to mix the metaphor for a moment, I try and prepare a nourishing meal for the family. This week, I dived into the text and couldn't find the bottom. So I just sank like a stone into the depths. By Thursday, I was really deep. And when I came up, I had the bends, decompression sickness. 
symptoms which include tingling or numbness, increased sensitivity, confusion or memory loss, visual abnormalities, unexplained mood or behaviour changes. <laughs> the biblical bends. This came up. What on earth am I going to say on Sunday? A great Bible scholar of a previous age, William Barclay, said these words, which didn't give me any comfort. There are few passages in the New Testament where more of the great fundamental Christian ideas come together. You're not kidding, William. So today we're going to keep it really simple. It's about new birth. It's about new birth. Peter starts by reminding his readers that God has done some incredible things for them. And the first thing he says is he's given us new birth. In his great mercy he has given us new birth. Now what does this mean? New birth. You've probably all heard the phrase born again Christians. But you don't like that phrase. It's up there with Jesus freak. I noticed that Maxim's got Jesus freak on his Facebook page. What does it mean to be born again, new birth? Now, what does birth signify? Here's a baby called George Porter. He was born uh, in, how old is he now? 13 months. What does new life mean? When life comes, it has to be fed and nurtured and grow. Or it will get sick and wither and die. That means that new life brings potential. But it also means need. It must be fed and watered. George has to be fed and watered. New life also means you're in a family. I don't know if Benjamin in this picture is looking excited or scared or nervous or a mixture of all of them. And George certainly should be scared, shouldn't he? (laughs) He's sleeping there. You know, in this case, your new birth in Jesus means you now have siblings. Lots of them. You are not an island. You are in a social context. You belong to other people and they belong to you. You are not an isolated, pure, ubermensch kind of individual. Now just think about this. What do you get from your birth, the mere fact of your birth? What does George get? Here he is with his family, looking quite scared again. <laughs> By a body of water. This is a porter selfie by the look of it. (laughs) What does George get by virtue of being born into this family? Well, one thing he gets is his citizenship. I think he's a British citizen. You know what? I've got my passport here today. The passport has incredibly poncy words in the front page. I don't know if you've ever read it. Her Britannic Majesty, Secretary of State, requests and requires in the name of Her Majesty... All those whom it may concern to allow the bearer to pass freely, without let or hindrance, and to afford the bearer such assistance and protection as may be necessary. (laughs) See, you don't get that in an American passport. George gets to be a citizen just by virtue of being born. He didn't do anything to deserve it. But here he is. He's entitled to be a citizen of this country. He gets to go on the NHS. He's been using their services this week. Much to his parents' delight. Also, by being born into that family, so I'm going to get in trouble, there's certain potentialities, right? (laughs) Certain things that probably will come about. 
I'm looking at that picture and think he's probably going to be quite bright. <laughs> now, Andrew's a lot younger than me, but I played Trivial Pursuit with him once. I'm not playing with him again. <laughs> Arlie is very bright as well, very, very, probably be quite organised. He's probably going to be polite, you know? He's also going to be, going to be nutritionally balanced. <laughs> You know, if your mum is a nutritionist, I pity you. I really, I don't know if Benjamin has ever tasted a McDonald's. These guys are never going to get a bag of crisps in their packed lunch. Or a chocolate bar, you know. They're not going to get chips on the way home from school. Or if they do, they will hide them. And have some carrots before they go home. Now, just by virtue of being born into this family, he gets... His identity, his citizenship, his social class, and many, many innate potentialities, just by virtue of his birth. Right? It is difficult to imagine a more sweeping concept than a new birth. It includes everything. And that's where Peter goes when he wants to tell his ordinary Christian readers what it means to be a Christian. It means you've been born again. New birth. If you've been called by God to follow Jesus and you've responded, if God's spirit has come and changed your heart, then it is nothing less than a new birth. It's not just changing your religion. It's a new birth. You've been given a new life with all the implications of that. A new identity, a new citizenship, a new family context, new potential. Now, Peter says that new birth is into two things. Hope and inheritance. Hope and inheritance is the first of them. Let's read it again, verse uh, 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. A living hope. Now, our culture yearns and craves for hope, doesn't it? And yet, most of the time, we cannot find secure hope. A friend of mine was leading a uh, large group of teenagers on a Christian conference called Word Alive. And they had this thing where there was a mobile phone number and the teenagers could text in uh, questions to this phone and it was anonymous. So they got all sorts of questions, the real questions people were asking came through on this, this phone. And this one teenager, they don't know who it was, texted in, what is the point of living if you feel dead inside. Teenager. No hope. We want hope. We crave hope. We need hope. But so often we don't have it. This week I got two flyers. The first of them is a campaign called Hope Not Hate. In fact, I think my neighbour put this through my door. Spread a little hope in your area. Give two hours to spread hope, capital letters, in Manchester. Hope Not Hate Day of Action yesterday Bowling Green Pub in Chalton, campaigning all day. What is this about? The anti-racist action group Hope Not Hate is organising a local day of action, distribute a newspaper, carrying positive stories of communities coming together in the face of adversity, but also challenging myths about immigration and race. These newspapers are the perfect antidote to the UKIP and BMP's politics of hate and fear. Now... I don't know anything about this. I'm not passing a political comment. Except I will say this. 
Hope Not Hate are telling positive stories of communities coming together. But how solid is that hope? How solid is the hope that communities will just come together and embrace the other and the outsider? Look at community relations over the past three or four thousand years. What is the human race's track record with outsiders and the other? Where are we going to get secure hope for an integrated community? Probably not just by telling stories. Now, the other flyer that I got uh, is for the campaign for dignity in dying. It has this picture of a woman looking absolutely miserable, uh, Geraldine McClelland. And the quote is, by the time you read this, I will have been assisted to die in Switzerland. And the whole point of the campaign is that people should be allowed to choose to die in Britain. But they have to go to Switzerland at the moment. She says, by the time you read this, I will have been assisted to die in Switzerland. I made this choice knowing that it was the right decision for me. And I'm not sad that I will die. I know that I'm dying now. And I only have weeks to live. I've had a good life and I want my life to end with me still in control of it. And then she says, please don't feel sad for me. Really? Please don't feel sad for you? There are various great and the good dignitaries who've signed up as uh, patrons. One of them is Sir Terry Pratchett. He looks like one of the characters from his books, actually. (laughs) So Terry Pratchett says, I endorse the work of dignity in dying. I believe passionately any individual should have the right to choose the time and conditions of their death. I think it's time we learn to be as good at dying as we are at living. That's the problem, isn't it? We're not very good at living. We're not very good at living. We need hope. But this campaign doesn't have any hope to offer. The only hope it's got is the hope of an ending. On your terms. And the mood that is captured just underneath the surface of those stories is captured by Douglas Copeland in his novel Hey Nostradamus, which was reflecting on the Columbine High School massacres. One of the characters says this, Look at us, we're all born lost, aren't we? We're all born separated from God. Over and over, life makes sure to inform us of this, and yet we're all real. We have names. We have lives. We mean something. We must. My heart is so cold and I feel so lost. I shed my block of hate, but what if nothing emerges to fill in the hole it left? The universe is so large and the world so glorious, but here I am on a sunny August morning with chilled black ink pumping through my veins and I feel like the unholiest thing on earth. We need hope. But our culture has none. It doesn't have the resources to provide solid hope. And so there's a rising tide of despair, an epidemic of hopelessness, just coated over with some hollow laughter and trivial distractions. Now, the ancient world was no different. In Greek thought, the despair of this life is followed only by the unending night of death. The poet Catullus wrote that, Though the sun can set and rise again, once our brief light sets, there is just one unending night to be slept through. Sophocles, reflecting on the the fate of Oedipus, it is best not to be born at all, and the second best is to die at birth. Hopeless, but not for the Christian. Christians have been given new birth, it says here, into a living hope. 
It's not a dead hope based on futile things. It's a living hope because it's grounded, rooted in something solid. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We thought about this at length two weeks ago. We celebrated the resurrection of Jesus at Easter. Christians believe that Jesus literally and physically rose from the dead in a new kind of body. It was recognisably Jesus. You could put your fingers in his hands and feet and side and see where the, the, the wounds of his cross had been. But it was healed. And it wasn't just kind of raised up again and going to die again. It was a new kind of body, glorious body, never to die or decay. A resurrection body. And this means that there is hope beyond the grave for the Christian. Not just pie in the sky when you die by and by. But the hope of a resurrected future in a new kind of world. The world we all want. The world without sickness. The world without pain. The world without tears. The world without suffering. The world without grief. The world without saying goodbye never to see you again. A new kind of world. That is our hope and foundation for life. Everything else will fail. Everything else will slip from our grasp. But if we are in Christ, if we belong to Jesus, if we are born again, we will live forever in a new creation. Now, do you want that kind of hope? Do you? What is your hope built on today? Do you have any? Now, the other thing about being born into a family is that you become an heir. Now, some of you here may be fortunate enough to expect a sizable inheritance. Others may know that you are going to inherit tuppence halfpenny, Unless you have a distant relative in Australia who you've never heard of, who's going to die and leave it all to you. And we all know how likely that is. But the fact is, if you're born into a family, you will inherit something even if it's only your father's debts. (laughs) And Peter says this second thing about being given new birth by God is is this. You're you're born into an inheritance. Let's read the text again. Chapter 1, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish Spoil or fade. What is this inheritance? Peter says it's imperishable. It won't perish, it won't spoil, it won't fade. And those three things affect all of our worldly goods. Think about your favourite thing. Your favourite thing. I'm thinking about my goatskin leather Bible. (laughs) And my 1962 Watkins British guitar, which is already perishing, spoiling and fading. These three things affect all our earthly goods, all our our best things. Decay, corruption and time. Even a great earthly inheritance is subject to these three forces. Perishing, spoiling, fading. And my wife's family has quite a few eccentrics in it. And one of the chief of them was a man known as Great Uncle Lionel. Uncle Lionel lived in the basement of a beautiful Victorian townhouse in Hertfordshire. And he he spent all his days in the basement with his two sisters who never married. He forbade them to marry. 
And they owned five townhouses in a row in this beautiful Victorian town in Hertfordshire. And these houses were full of antique furniture, beautiful, beautiful furniture, including Ming vases. And they never went in the houses. They never went in the rooms. They never used the furniture because they lived in the basement of one house all their days, saving up and not spending money. Uncle Lionel wore jumpers with so many holes in, he had to wear more than one jumper to cover up the holes of the one underneath him. He had a room. This sounds made up, by the way, but it's actually true. It's my wife's family. He had a room that was full, totally full from floor to ceiling of the Financial Times. Every copy going back however many years, because he was a, an avid student of stocks and shares, and he was a great investor. He put money into all sorts of things, gold mines in South Africa, and blah, blah, blah. He never enjoyed any of it, but he invested a lot of money and made a lot of money, millions of pounds. And they owned the five townhouses and they owned the stocks and shares, and the heirs were waiting for their share. The heirs were waiting for their share. Well, what happened to that inheritance? The inheritance was subject to the forces of perishing and the ravages of time. The furniture, which was top-end antique stuff, was riddled with woodworm and had to be burnt. A beautiful, antique, ornate French clock was neglected, falling apart and tarnished with time. Great to have a clock tarnished with time. (laughs) The houses were falling apart because they'd been neglected for years and years. They were decaying. The back veranda of the biggest house had an ornate, cast-iron Victorian veranda. It had rusted. And had to be pulled down. A lovely orchard at the end of the garden had run wild. And was ruined. What about corruption? A canny member of the family offered to be Uncle Lionel's executor. And to make sure everyone got their fair share when he passed. What do you think happened? I heard a story this week of a minister. Who paid into a pension scheme for 22 years only to find that the Christian financial advisor had stolen all the money. That man is now in prison, but the minister has nothing to retire on. You work for 40 or 50 years, and what have you got? At best, something that will perish, spoil and fade, right? Peter says, God has given us, through Jesus, new birth into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. So, what is it? What is this inheritance? Some kind of celestial monopoly money? You know, you get all the 500s and Park Lane and Mayfair. Well, in the Old Testament background to this Bible passage, inheritance was always the land that God's people were going to go to and they were promised that they would live there for years and it would be a land flowing with milk and honey and everyone would have their own vine and fig tree and it would be a place of peace and a place of joy and a place to bring up children and a place where you'd enjoy long life. A place to call our own. And yet the land of Israel was not such an inheritance, was it? You read the Old Testament, it was a place full of corruption. It was spoiled again and again because of the sin and failure of the people and those who came in. And then eventually it was a place where they were exiled from. And by the rivers of Babylon they sat down and wept when they remembered Zion. As Boney M memorably sang. (laughs) So what is the Christian's inheritance in Jesus? 
if it's a place to call our own? It must be this. It must be a share in the kingdom of God. Jesus spent his whole ministry teaching about his kingdom that was coming. And every one of his miracles is kind of a window into what the world will be like when Jesus is fully in charge. Sometimes think of, talk about miracles like they're proof that Jesus was God. Well, they, they are. But the main point of Jesus' miracles is that they're a foretaste of the world to come. So Jesus feeds 5,000 people with a packed lunch. It's because in the world to come, everybody will have plenty. Jesus, a woman comes up to Jesus in the crowd. She's been bleeding for 12 years. Probably some kind of uh, urethral discharge. She touches the back of his robe. She's healed immediately. That's a sign that the world to come, when Jesus is fully in charge, everybody will be healed. Healthy bodies. There's a man who's possessed by demons. He's absolutely crazy. He lives out in the tombs. He breaks chains. He hurts himself. He, he, he scares everyone to death. Jesus goes and he falls on his face before him and says, and, and Jesus Heals him, he's restored, put in his right mind. In the world to come, there'll be no evil, there'll be no sickness. It's the kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom of God. That's the inheritance that we're promised. So we've got new birth into a living hope and an inheritance that will never perish, fall, or fade. Okay? So, very simple question to end with Have you been born again? Have you got new birth? Have you had it? Have you experienced new birth? New birth means you're now part of God's family. So if you go away and go somewhere else to be with your family for the weekend, you've left your family. Your family's here. And you have a lot of siblings that you did not choose. Like any normal siblings. You didn't choose your siblings, but you've got to get on with them. So we have to work at being family if we've got new birth. New birth means you've got a new identity that is based on belonging to Jesus. Not based on your IQ, your profession, or your love life. Not defined. I'm not defined by being married to Melissa. I'm defined by belonging to Jesus Christ. It's more fundamental. New birth means you have to nurture your new life with the right nutrients, or you'll get sick. That means Bible reading, praying, and fellowship with other Christians are not an optional extra. They are your five a day. And new birth means you've got all the rights and privileges of being a child of God and a great future. New birth means a new way of life. Not hanging on to the old way of life with its sinful, vile, deceptive and hating practices, but a new, pure, righteous way of life. We're going to learn a lot about that from Peter. So what are you doing day by day to nurture your new life? What are you doing to to keep growing and going as a Christian? I normally sit down here at the front here, in front of Colin. And uh, I, I therefore cannot see anybody else in the room when I'm singing. And I then come up and speak. But today, because of the theatrical reading we're doing, I sat up there at the back and I was trying to control Ben, which is very hard to do. But it did strike me that there were a lot of long faces here during the singing. A lot of people just not switched on. Just really not that engaged, frankly. Now, I'm going to sit there in future so I don't have to look again. But, let me ask you. It's quite possible to be in an evangelical, Bible-believing church. It's quite possible to believe all the right things. It's quite possible to win the Bible round of the pub quiz. You know so much. And actually not to be born again. 
quite possible to deceive yourself. It's quite possible that some of our 80 or so church members, it's quite possible some of them aren't actually born again. Because there's no new life. There's no change. There's no joy. There's no growth. There's just going round and round and going through the motions. You're only here today because it's something you have to do on Sunday morning. Get out of it as quickly as possible and forget about it. Are you born again? Really? This is simple. Let me ask you, what are you setting your hopes on? The hopes of your heart. What do you really hope for? Is it the living hope? Or is it something else? And you can tell because it's the thing you daydream about. It's what you dream of. It's what drives you. What gets you excited. It's the thing that gets you up in the morning. What is your hope fundamentally? Where do you belong? Are you born again? Have you been born again? Have you experienced the new birth? Do you know what I'm talking about? Well, here's the good news. It says in this verse here, verse 3, Praise be to God, in his great mercy, he's given us new birth. This is not a right. It's not something that God owes us. God would be perfectly within his rights to cast us away and never speak to us. God could easily throw us out of his presence into judgment. But he, he holds out mercy. And that means that you can be born again today. You can. Don't be ashamed or embarrassed if you feel, actually, I've been going through the motions all these years and never even realised. It's fine. I was the same. Some preachers have been converted in their own sermon. Right? Some preachers have been giving out the Lord's Supper and realised there that they weren't actually born again. John Wesley was a missionary, and on the way back from his mission trip, he realised he wasn't born again. And he got down on his knees, and his heart was strangely warmed. He heard the reading of the Bible, and there was a big change wrought in him that never, he never looked back from. You can be born again today. So let me just offer you a conversation. If you want to talk to me, or um, maybe one of the ladies uh, afterwards, don't put it off. Why would you? What else are you going to live for? In his great mercy, he's given us a new birth into a living hope and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. Kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the last day. Let's make sure we grab on and hold on and seize and look for the right things this week for the glory of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We've read a lot of scripture today. Pray that it wouldn't be dead to us and we to it. Pray that uh, you would have caused some, someone here, maybe just one person, to wake up to their own spiritual reality, their own state, and to want to belong to you, to want to be forgiven, to want that hope, to want new life, to want an inheritance with you, to be with you in the place to call our own. Heavenly Father, please send your Holy Spirit now. Do a great work among us. Waken our hearts, warm us up, give us a fire in our bellies that maybe we've never had before or we've lost a long time ago. Change us for your glory, we pray, so that we can live in this world as elect exiles scattered in the diaspora of Manchester and further afield for the glory of Jesus Christ, your Son and our Saviour. Amen.